Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Is it the party of Lincoln or the party of Trump? Divisions within the GOP cost one of their leaders her job. Plus, the fallout from the Blake decision seems to be much larger than anyone previously thought. Washington state finally has a deadline to fully reopen, and a Northwest sheriff could soon face the wrath of voters. But first, well, it's not often that a public records request leads to a mayor allegedly breaking the law. But that seems to be what has happened with regards to a request made from us here at Como News. What exactly happened? Well, joining us now is Como's Matt Markovich. And uh, this all has to do with the CHOP in the Seattle Police East Precinct building last year. And a lot of controversy for a lame duck mayor and Jenny Durkin. So what exactly happened? Well, what happened is we all wanted to know, including you, and thank you for filing those requests mm-hmm. on behalf of Como, Jeff. Um, you should get acknowledgement for that. Uh, what we wanted to know was who ordered the East Precinct closed? It, it's been an open debate ever since it happened almost a year ago in early June. Uh, the, the closure of the East Precinct then led to the creation of Chaz, which became CHOP. And we all know what happened there, a six-block area of what people said was an unruly and unlawless uh, little community there until the police shut it down. Um, so who made that order? Well, the police chief never said that she never did it. And there's always been question, what was the mayor's involvement in that? One of the ways that we do that is go through the Public Records Act and ask the city for correspondence with the mayor uh, which is everything is a public record that a public official does and can be asked for by any member of the public. And we in the press do this all the time. So we asked, what was the mayor's correspondence during that time that led up to the closure of uh, the East Precinct? And there were basically 48 public disclosure requests filed to the city uh, regarding that time period who involving the mayor's correspondence. Well, most of us didn't get anything back. And part of the reason now we're finding out is that the mayor had somehow had lost 10 months of her texts on her city issued phone. And we didn't know that in the press, neither did any of the requesters. And that came out in light of uh, came out during a investigation, a whistleblower investigation uh, that was uh, started by two members of the mayor's public disclosure staff who were basically calling the whistle out on a member of her legal department that limited the scope of those PDR requests on what communications meant. And the legal advisor basically told the the, uh, public disclosure staff, texts are not part of that disclosure process, so you don't have to reveal the texts. Well, to be clear, in in the public disclosure request that I filed, I said any emails, voicemails, text messages, etc. So I was very clear in the one I filed, but I didn't get any of the text messages. And so there's there's two prongs on this is what happened after they, so they filed a public disclosure request uh, and the legal advisor um, said, no, you don't have to include the text messages. Well, that's one prong of all this. But in light of that, we found out through that investigation by the Ethics Commission, Ethics and Election Commission, through this whistleblower complaint, that 10 months of the mayor's texts had disappeared and that the mayor's office knew about that in August, you know, two months after the uh, East Precinct was shut down and well after 
we all filed public disclosure requests uh, to f- seek out those messages. So for months and months and months, little did, we didn't know this at the time, the mayor's office and the staff of the city was scrambling to try and recreate the texts that were missing off the mayor's phone, contacting people that she had texted to ask them to send to them those texts, those texts that the mayor had had with that person. So they can recreate a trail of all these missing texts. And that was kind of well under the radar there. So when the whistleblowers talked about that, and eventually what the ethics commission decided is that the mayor's office went to great lengths to hide from the public what had happened to her texts and this effort to recreate this text stream in order to comply with the public disclosure request. So you have two things going on here. One, you have people are asking for the text, but then the attorney saying, her legal counsel saying, no, you don't have to turn those in because it doesn't fit her definition of communications with the mayor. And secondly, you have 10 months of missing texts that were never acknowledged to all the requesters who never got anything back. And this is explaining why you didn't get anything back, Jeff. Um, that this was going on at the time. Well, to be clear, destruction of public documents, governing documents, is a crime under Washington state law. So that then begs the question, well, what happened to the text? Well, according to the mayor's office, they're saying that a retention setting on her smartphone was improperly set. So it wasn't keeping track of all the texts that were on her phone. Well, it just happens to be at a super critical period. (laughs) I I hate to be cynical, but is anyone really buying that story? Because Jenny Durkin is a former federal prosecutor. She has experience in government. She knows the federal laws and the state laws with regards to what documents are public and what documents are not. And to say, oh, well, a setting was wrong. I'm I'm not sure that anyone's going to really buy that. Well, they, they claim that there was a forensic, and this is through, um, and I'm quote, basically I'm quoting what was in the Ethics Commission report that said that the, the city had done a forensic analysis of her phone in order to try and retrieve those text messages and failed. It couldn't do that. So that's why they reverted to literally asking, hey, did you text Mayor Jenny uh, on August 10th, of, you know, where we think you may have been texted during that time? Can you send us the text, the exchange you may have had with her? Is that still on your phone? You know, that's the extent that they were doing all this. Um, and we're finding out now also, according to the Seattle Times, uh, I haven't been able to corroborate this with the attorneys, but they spoke with the attorneys who are filing a lawsuit with the city regarding CHOP. And, uh, you know, the wrongful death of uh, a person who was, you know, a, a stabbed or shot there. Um, those attorneys told the Seattle Times that it's not just not the mayor's text. It's the text of uh, the Ch- Carmen Best, who was the police chief at that time. Uh, Fire chief uh, Harold Scoggins is involved in that. And a couple other city officials are all missing texts. So it's not just one phone all of a sudden, which the, the mayor's office said, hey, there's a retention problem according to the times and they're quoting these attorneys that they were told it involves all these other people that are missing their text I mean, but that's, during that's, this very critical time. That's government 101. You do not destroy public documents. I mean, it. I find it, and, and this is the cynical part of me coming out, I find it very hard to believe that a former federal prosecutor and her staff would not know that. I think they're very much aware of that. That's why this is another can of worms here. I mean, I hate to use that cliche, 
but people are going to start digging into, well, we still don't know, have a complete, a thorough answer as to who closed, who ordered the closure of the East Precinct. And now a good evidence trail seems to have disappeared, not just with a mayor's phone, but now allegedly through all these other phones. So it just makes you sniff. Something smells bad here, as you've been saying, like you said, and we just don't have a final answer on it right now. But, but thanks to um, but this is all came out because two people inside the mayor's office, they're two public disclosure people, filed an official whistleblower complaint with the city ethics and the election commission to saying what happened. And investigation was done. And then we have some answers as to what happened now, uh, courtesy of these two people. And Jenny Durkin, you know, at various press conferences, we've asked her directly if she had ordered the withdrawal from the East Precinct. She wouldn't answer the question. Right. And the uh, the Chief Best has been on the record many times saying she did not order it. And I'm going to paraphrase in terms of where we sit on who gave the order. Right now, it's a collective belief that there was a command structure within uh, the police department that involved the precinct captain uh, who said, we're not going to let this, them destroy this precinct. And this is obviously following what happened in uh, Minneapolis after the death of George Floyd, one of their precincts burned to the ground. So with that fresh in the mind, the, the, the SBD did not want to, uh, they didn't want to abandon the post, but they somewhere in the hierarchy of the SPD command structure, a decision was made supposedly, and we're still very unclear about this, to leave the East Precinct, and we all know what happened there, Chaz, Chop, and then everything else, you know, kind of fell apart. But in terms of the mayor's eyes, it's the summer of love. And, well, yeah, that's that That quote's right up there with, uh, I'd grade our <laughs> snow response to be a B, uh, from if you go back to Mayor Nichols back in the day about 10, 15 years ago. But uh, Jenny Durkin is a lame duck. She's not running for re-election. She's out of office end of the year, and... Is she just, I mean, I, I hate to ask you to, to ascribe motivations here. She's just uh, trying to run out the clock. I think there is a run out the clock strategy. I think this came out of nowhere. Um, I don't want to say that, in, and this is Matt Markovich speculating here. Mm-hmm. I want. I don't want to say it was intentional, these text messages uh, all of a sudden disappearing. But it's one of those key decisions in her four years as mayor, a, a, almost a, probably one of the most visible weird decisions that were made, the closure of the East Precinct and everything that followed up after it. It's such a key decision. What was the what was the command structure? What was the chain of command? Who what was the decision tree on that one? And that's still unanswered. So that's why, you know, running out the clock, trying not to answer that question. Maybe so, but I can't speculate on that. But I I, I believe that she knew she knew what the the rules were, like you just articulated very well. The question is now Will the city attorney do anything? So that's where, because you did bring up that it is illegal what happened. And the ethics commission found that it was an unlawful exercise they did in light of the public records act of not reporting what they, you know, telling the requesters that the, the, the text had gone missing as well as limiting the scope of the communications. That's now on the hands of the city attorney to do something about it. But as we said, Mayor Durkin isn't running for re-election, so there's really not going to be a whole lot of consequences for her, even if it comes out that she did order them deleted. Well, the way the city charter is written, she has to respond to the Ethics Commission investigation. 
there's no the ethics commission has no legal binding authority to charge her with any crime or anything else they just filed a report but she has to within 60 days or her office has to within 60 days to respond to see if there's been any changes and how they handle public disclosure and then and immediately after this investigation was released uh this week you know Lorena Gonzalez the president of the city council as well as a mayoral candidate announced a plan to take away the public disclosure process that involves the mayor uh, documents away from the mayor's office and hand it over to what she called a new entity that would handle all public disclosure office uh, requests for the mayor. She's very quick to point out that in the city council's case, any public re- uh, documents request goes through the city clerk and not the mayoral, excuse me, the city council staff. So they don't handle the public disclosures. Whereas in the mayor's office, the mayor's office staff handles the public disclosures. And so it's a different situation at the city council level. We'll have to see how this thing plays out over the next few weeks and months. Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Jeff, anytime. Still to come, is it the Republican Party or the Trump Party? The divisions within the GOP come to a head when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the House Republican Conference voted to oust Representative Liz Cheney, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, from leadership and likely to be in her place as Elise Stefanik of New York, although the election has yet to take place. But this has shown divisions within the Republican Party. And for an expert on the Republican Party, I figured I'd bring in KVI conservative talk show host John Carlson. And uh, John, I guess, first off, what is your reaction to this? Because we've seen these divisions in the Republican Party for the last five or six years, ever since Trump came on the scene. And this is another issue of Trump versus not Trump, isn't it? Well, not really. I mean, I think that this is the kind of issue that's huge in Washington, D.C., But, Jeff, I don't think it matters much to anyone outside the nation's capital. But didn't they remove Liz Cheney for criticizing the former president? They removed her from leadership for a number of reasons, one of which is that she was constantly getting in Twitter battles and soundbite contests with Donald Trump. And her post as head of the Republican conference, a post that she kind of wrested away from Washington's own Kathy McMorris Rogers uh, back in 2018, is supposed to be focused on getting a a Republican majority in the congressional midterms in 2022. How does fighting with Donald Trump help you do that? Uh, Let's use a a different example. Suppose that instead of being anti-Trump, Liz Cheney was hardcore Trump, and she was picking fights with moderates who are uncomfortable with Donald Trump or who are anti-Donald Trump or who want to move on from Donald Trump. It would be the same issue. You know, you're getting distracted. You're supposed to be focused on members of Congress, uh, not on the previous Republican president. You see uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy saying, yes, this is a big tent. We have all sorts of views. But in that same debate, we had this interesting point, and this came from Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia. I'm going to play this clip for you and and have you react to it. There was no insurrection, and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. Watching the TV footage of those who entered the Capitol and walked through Statuary Hall showed people in an orderly fashion staying between the stanchions and ropes taking videos and pictures. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, 
you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. Now, Representative Andrew Clyde's had a lot of pushback from those comments, but this was uh, when the conference was talking and, and debating over whether or not to remove uh, Representative Liz Cheney from the leadership role. And uh, this all started back on January 6th. You had that insurrection at the Capitol and you had the, some Republicans backing President Trump and some Republicans basically saying enough is enough. No one should back the rioters. OK, um, there was a hardcore number of rioters who physically uh, pushed through, overpowered and were violent with Capitol Hill police officers. OK, that's a fact that happened. It's on video. They were not undercover Antifa. Those were out of control Trump supporters. And they were some of them were starting to push through into the Capitol while Donald Trump was still speaking, you know, way down by the White House on the ellipse when the rally was still going on. They were already rioting. They came to D.C. to do this. And then afterwards, when the Capitol was breached, there were a lot of other people who walked in and were walking through the Capitol, but they didn't belong there. They weren't supposed to be there. The Capitol was supposed to be locked down that day to outside visitors. Uh, So, no, that congressman was playing down the reality of what happened that day. What happened that day was wrong, illegal. Uh, The people who were violent with the police should be in jail. And so nobody should be defending uh, the rioting that took took place that day. But you see a lot of people maybe not defending the rioters, but at least understanding where they're coming from. You still have what some are calling the big lie. President Trump pushing this idea that the election was stolen when it uh, in fact was not. And I think that's what uh, Representative Liz Cheney was pushing back against, wasn't she? She was. On the facts, Liz Cheney is correct that the election was not stolen. Was there fraud? In pockets here and there, yes. Were there irregularities? Yes. Was there questionable calls made here and there? Yes. But not in any sufficient number to overturn results in even one of the states, not even in Georgia or Arizona, where the threshold was only like 10, 12,000 votes. So there's a difference between, you know, where was there... Uh, fraud in the election and did fraud turn the election because Donald Trump did not win this election. Joe Biden won the election and most Republicans acknowledge this, but they're moving on. They're looking at the midterms and they're focused on what Joe Biden is doing wrong, not what Donald Trump you know, is claiming uh, to be a stolen election. You said most Republicans agree that this was a, a legitimate election. I'm, you know, I don't think anyone's disputing that. But there still is a faction of the Republican Party that feels it was stolen. And isn't it that faction of the Republican Party that pushed Cheney out of power? Uh, I think there are some members of Congress who feel that way. But no, that's a very good question, Jeff. Are there a number of Republicans who don't believe the election was stolen who voted to oust Liz Cheney anyway? And the answer is yes, definitely yes. There was Republican opposition to her across the board for a number of reasons. First, 
that she was abrasive. Second, that she was not raising sufficient money. Third, that she had gotten involved in a couple of primary elections, which as head of the caucus, she should have you know, maintained neutrality and, and let the primary election results answer for themselves. So she was controversial even before uh, she chose to amp up her dispute with Donald Trump. So do you expect this battle between uh, the two factions of the party ends here or no? Oh, I think there's going to be hurt feelings for a while. Um, I don't know what Liz Cheney's next move is. Uh, she's, she's got some fence mending to do in Wyoming. But like I said, to people outside Washington, D.C., they're not thinking about 20 or about 22. They're thinking about 2021 and they're thinking about gas prices. They're thinking about what they're seeing on TV every night going on down at the border. They're thinking about the economy. They're hearing about inflation and increasingly, I think, are unsettled about the direction we're going in, even as we appear to be emerging from this pandemic. All right, KVI's talk show host, John Carlson, thank you so much for your time. You got it, Jeff. When we come back, the fallout from the Blake decision is far bigger than anyone could have imagined. The details when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, and the fallout from the Blake decision, far more costly than anyone previously thought. I uh, want to bring back in uh, Como's Mac Markovich for an update on this, and the numbers just in King County are staggering. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with the Blake decision, that's when the state Supreme Court ruled basically 50 years of drug possession law unconstitutional. Uh, so it's known as the Blake decision. And now we're finding out that just in King County, taxpayers are going to be shelling out tens of millions of dollars for thousands of drug possession case, cases that are affected by this ruling. Uh, on Monday of this week, King County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg, during a presentation to the King County Council, revealed that some 50,000 offenders convicted of simple drug possession in the county over the last 50 years estimated $10 million may be owed to them in reimbursements and fines, and that was part of the judges, the, the uh, Supreme Court's decision. Also, up to 1,200 offenders who were convicted just in King County of that drug possession law may have to have their sentences recalculated. And for some offenders, that can mean an early release from prison. Mm -hmm. Already, the prosecutor is estimated at 350 offenders awaiting trial that have a simple drug possession as part of their case have had that charge already dismissed from more than 350 people. So this is just King County. Have we heard Pierce County or Snohomish County or any of the others? Are they still trying to figure it all out? No, I think every county is trying to assess how much it's going to cost. And, you know, so here's the, and when it comes down to the bill, the legislature uh, in January finally decided to have a two-year fix. Basically, it used to be a Class C felony, a simple drug possession. But now, going forward, it's going to be a simple misdemeanor punishable by $1,000 or 30 days in jail, except the first two times you don't you go to treatment, you don't even go to jail, but also falls on the shoulders of the counties to make all the fixes for 50 years of other cases. So this legislature gave counties $79 million. Not that, that's just not 70, $79 million for King County. That's $79 million for the entire state for all counties to share to help kind of alleviate maybe higher judges, pay for some of the reimbursements. It's nowhere near enough. 
So we're going to have to see how this plays out because obviously there's still much more work to be done. Matt Markovich, thank you so much for the quick update. Still to come, free booze for the vaccinated. And the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, Governor Jay Inslee announced that the state should fully reopen, fully reopen by June 30th. That is about a month and a half away. He also announced some other rather creative incentives to get people vaccinated. And joining me now is KVI talk show host John Carlson, who seems to be taking some credit for this because of an op-ed you wrote this week <laughs> in uh, the Seattle Times. And, uh, well, uh, first off, uh, let's let's go back to that op-ed. What was the thesis of what you wrote in the Times? The thesis I wrote in the Seattle Times, Jeff, is not that we should be fully open on June 30th, but that we should be fully open right now. The reason for it, a number of reasons, is that, you know, I, I started where everyone should agree, and that is that this is a very serious disease, COVID-19, especially for older folks with pre-existing issues, and it can be very serious for middle-aged people also with pre-existing health issues. The good news is that most of these people have been vaccinated. The other good news is that these vaccines work. They dramatically reduce your chance of getting COVID. Your chances of getting COVID if you've been fully vaccinated, Jeff, are 0.008%. Well, I'm feeling pretty confident because I've had both shots. Pretty good. Yes, that's, that, that's pretty good. The, the other uh, part of this is that it's so easy to get vaccinated. Pretty much at this point, you don't even need an appointment. A lot of places you can just stroll in and get one and they'll give you stuff. And in fact, you're, I think you have a couple of examples there where they will now give you incentives to go in and get vaccinated. Indeed. And in fact, I think the first one that we saw was a couple of weeks ago when the Seattle Mariners announced that they are having not only you know free vaccination appointments, which, by the way, no matter where you go, the vaccines are free. That was a, a part of the uh, federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but offering vaccinations at the ballpark. Plus, they have vaccinated only sections and 20% off food and drink for a certain uh, period of time if you prove that you're vaccinated, that sort of thing. But now we're seeing the state do the sim- some similar ones. The one that really kind of stuck out in my mind, the Liquor and Cannabis Board is working on a request from wineries and breweries to allow them to buy a glass or a pint for vaccinated customers. So if, if I were to summarize for a headline, free booze, for vaccinated people. You know what? Not a bad idea. Any incentive that works in Ohio, they're actually entering people in a million dollar lottery. That's the other part of this is pretty much everyone who wants to be vaccinated at this point has been vaccinated or is on their way to being vaccinated. And so my take on this is since most people have been vaccinated, want to be vaccinated, and people who have not been vaccinated have made the decision, they're going to ignore the public health campaign, they're going to ignore the easy access to get a vaccine, uh, that they should not be holding back society from getting reopened. There's always the question of herd immunity and and what exactly that is and and what the percentage is obviously depends on the virus. Uh, The goal that's been thrown around uh, for some time, I think, with this one is 70 percent of the population in order to reach herd immunity. But clearly we don't know. This is a novel virus. We've never seen coronavirus before. How concerned are you 
about vaccine hesitancy because there's still a good chunk of the population. I have members of my own family that refuse to get the vaccine. Well, if they do, how does that impact the rest of us? It doesn't. You have next to no chance of getting COVID if you've been fully vaccinated. Again, 0.008%. You know, the CDC just came out with uh, an announcement. If you've been fully vaccinated, you shouldn't be required to wear a mask indoors or outdoors. You don't need to maintain social distancing. So if someone else doesn't want to get vaccinated, why should we wear a mask for them? The larger concern about vaccinations, and I'm not a scientist, but the, the fewer people that are vaccinated, the more chance the virus obviously has to spread. The more it spreads, the more it can mutate into something that the vaccines won't protect against. So I think that's that's one of the big arguments. Uh, but the other thing that, that just gets me is, is to why the resistance to this particular vaccine as opposed to vaccines in general. Obviously, we have a group of anti-vaxxers within this population, but the resistance to the COVID vaccine seems to be strong than any of those. Everyone in my family has been vaccinated. However, I really had to persuade a couple members of my family to do so. And here's why, Jeff. They were concerned about whether the vaccine appeared too quickly, about whether it was rushed into distribution before it was adequately tested. That seems to be the reason a number of people who are not anti-vaxxers are skeptics. It's not that they're not going to be vaccinated. It's that they're kind of taking a wait and see attitude. And so I think that accounts for why more people are hesitant to get the COVID vaccines than uh, previous. And, and turning back to the, the government side of this, that where we started this conversation, the, the different incentives that uh, not only private business, but various governments are doing to get people vaccinated to uh, help the greater good in public health. It seems to me that incentives seem to work better than punishments. In a free society, definitely. Coercion almost creates a resistance uh, attitude among a lot of people. Where I think some of our public health advocates are mistaken, Jeff, is they're thinking we need to stay locked down until more people get vaccinated. This is what the governor of Oregon is saying. Until 70 percent are vaccinated, we're going to stay locked down. However, I think a lot of people who are hesitant to get the vaccine are saying, well, why get vaccinated if we stay locked down anyway? If I still have to wear a mask, if I still can't go into my favorite uh, restaurant or bar, uh, if, if they have more than 50 percent capacity, wh why should I bother getting the vaccination? Maybe if we reopened and everybody was getting back to normal, they would say, hey, it's great getting back to normal, but with all these people, all these crowds, all these events, maybe I should get vaccinated to make sure I'm protected. Alan, we're going to see just how effective that is, as it looks like the state is on track to fully reopen by June 30th, and we'll find out shortly thereafter if we see a spike in COVID cases. John Carlson from KVI, thank you so much for your time. You got it, Jeff. Thank you. Still to come, a Northwest sheriff is one vote away from being removed from office when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The recall 
call of the Benton County Sheriff, Jerry Hatcher, can move forward according to the Benton County Auditor. Apparently enough signatures have been gathered to recall him from office. Joining me now is Ed Dawson. He is the news director at 610 KONA Radio in the Tri-Cities. Let's kind of reset things. What is this all about? Why are people not so happy with Benton County Sheriff Jerry Hatcher? Well, Jeff, it goes back uh, about a year and a half or so uh, when complaints were filed against Sheriff Hatcher uh, about the way that he ran his department. Uh, he had clashes with uh, leadership in the department, uh, other staff members in the Benton County Sheriff's Department. And uh, this has kind of been an ongoing thing. There was also the uh, the divorce proceedings that uh, with his uh, estranged wife that brought to light a number of other accusations, uh, including one that uh, is at the top of the list of the charges that he faces for this recall, and that's possessing at least 14 cases of county-owned ammunition for personal use. This uh, supposedly was um, being held at a uh, Montana residence where he would go hunting, uh, but it was linked back to uh, Benton County. Uh, some of that ammunition was, uh, was found at that location, but that all came out during the divorce proceedings. So there's a number of different uh, places where these accusations are coming from, and they began to pile up. Eventually, the guild of uh, sheriff's deputies got together and decided to back a move to recall Sheriff Hatcher. And uh, there was eight different charges that were validated uh, by the local judicial branch, and uh, it was immediately appealed to the state supreme court. That body also backed uh, and validated the eight different charges uh, against uh, Sheriff Hatcher that had enough substantiated claims uh, to move forward with a, with a recall. Now, obviously, the threshold, if they were going to try this in court for charges, would be a little bit different than uh, what the threshold is to at least put the matter before the people, which is uh, where we are uh, at this point. Uh, the voters of Benton County will have their opportunity uh, to either retain or remove uh, Sheriff Jerry Hatcher uh, coming up on August 3rd. So this this sounds like, you know, almost a, a critical mass of different things. There wasn't any really one thing that led to this effort to recall him. Is that accurate to say? That is accurate. And, you know, from the beginning, when asked about uh, to react to these accusations and then ultimately the recall charges, Sheriff Hatcher has always maintained that he has done nothing wrong, that this is a, a political move. This is, uh, you know, a retaliation for the way that he runs uh, his department. And he said from the beginning that his focus was to bring some order to a department that uh, was pretty loose. He was holding people accountable where they weren't being held accountable before. But the flip side of that argument is that uh, he is very strict uh, to the point that it's harassment of employees and that his way of doing things is not only not correct, but doesn't sit well with a lot of the staff members. So depending on which side of the fence that you fall, there's clearly some animosity between Sheriff Hatcher and uh, and those below him. And wasn't there also an issue with the local jail as well? There was. The part of this scenario uh, was uh, that the Benton County commissioners had an issue with the way Sheriff Hatcher was running his department, and they voted uh, to 
take the jail away from the sheriff's department's uh, purview. It is now a separate entity. So where in most cases, the sheriff's department operates or is in charge of the county jail facilities, the staffing and everything. In Benton County, it's uh, two separate things. And it was because the Benton County commissioners did not uh, feel that Sheriff Hatcher uh, could properly handle having the authority of the jail. So they, yeah, they, that is that has been taken off of his plate where he is only concerned with uh, the deputies under his charge. So what's been the local reaction to all of this? Certainly there's enough public support to launch a recall effort, but is there enough public support, do you think, to remove him from office? That's always tough to gauge because uh, this is an elected position. You can look at the different signage that's around Benton County, either for the recall or against the recall. And and that is one piece of the puzzle. If you did that, uh, it looks like more people would like to see him removed from office. Uh, We have an afternoon talk show that uh, we've discussed this uh, many times. And a majority of the callers calling in uh, support the removal of Sheriff Hatcher. Uh, But there's also quite a few that uh, are going to support him until the end, uh, whenever that comes. And Sheriff Hatcher uh, has has been uh, borderline defiant. Uh, he is not going to resign. He has said that many times. He is going to fight this until the very end. And uh, now we know that uh, the end could come August 3rd. All right, Ed Dawson, News Director for 610 KONA Radio in the Tri-Cities. Thank you so much for your time. You bet, anytime. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and for health, wellness, and more, be sure to check out The Fit Mess with Jeremy Grader. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.